Hey, good morning, and welcome to Faithful and Impress. My name is Emily Austell, and I'm with the Episcopal Church in West Tennessee. And each week, we have the opportunity to come to you from our WYXR home at Crosstown Concourse and on our podcast to share with you the ways that faith informs the lives of people in myriad ways. But first, the saint of the day, uh, Margaret of Scotland. She was the queen of Scotland in the year 1093. And according to Forward Day by Day, Shakespeare made familiar the names of Macbeth and Macduff, Duncan and Malcolm, but it is not always remembered that Malcolm married an English princess named Margaret in about the year 1070. With considerable zeal, Margaret sought to change what she considered to be old-fashioned and careless practices among the Scottish clergy. And she insisted that the observance of Lent, for example, was to begin on Ash Wednesday rather than on the following Monday, and that the Mass should be celebrated according to the accepted Roman rite. The Lord's Day was to be a day when, she said, quote, we apply ourselves only to prayers, end quote. She argued, she argued vigorously. She argued vigorously, though not always with success, against an exaggerated sense of unworthiness that made many of the pious Scots unwilling to receive communion regularly. Margaret's energies were not limited to reformation of formal church practices, though. She encouraged the founding of schools, hospitals, and orphanages, and used her influence with King Malcolm to help her improve the quality of life among the isolated Scottish clans. And together, Margaret and her husband rebuilt the monastery of Iona and founded Dunfermline Abbey. Did I say that right? Okay, well, maybe if you want to correct my pronunciation, please let me know because I probably butchered that. In addition to her zeal for the church and her people, Margaret was a conscientious wife and the mother of eight. Malcolm, a strong-willed man, came to trust her judgment, even in matters of politics. She also saw to the spiritual welfare of her large household. Margaret was not as successful as she wished to be in creating greater unity in faith and works between her own native England and the Scots. She was unable, for example, to bring an end to the warfare among the Highland clans, and after her death in 1093, there was a brief return to the earlier isolation of Scotland from England. But nevertheless, her work among the people and her reforms in the church made her Scotland's most beloved saint, and she died on November the 16th, 1093, and was buried at Dunfermline Abbey. We'll be right back with Faithfully Memphis.
Welcome back. This is Emily Austin for Faithfully Memphis. And today I am delighted to have on the show three friends from uh, the Community Alliance for the Homeless here in Memphis. 
Aaron Woods, Kirsten Hipkins, and Julie Myman. I wonder if you would sort of share with me how each of you were brought into the organization and like what drew you personally to it. Okay, and Erin has a big smile on her face. Like, she, she's like, okay. One thing that drew me was I always think about big things. I'm a visionary, and I always think about the system and what the system looks like and how can I be an influence or a change agent within the system. Mm-hmm. So when I found out about the opportunity and the opportunity kind of presented itself, I was like, hmm, should I, should I not? And was just kind of toiling with the idea. But after talking with a colleague that used to work here and speaking with him, he kind of gave, gave me kind of an overview of what the job would entail. Yeah. And so I knew that then, I knew then that's when I wanted to work for Community Alliance for the Homeless. and be You're from to Memphis, though, too, right? Born and raised. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so... I mean, that's something I would be interested in hearing from each of you, too. And, like, where you grew up and the communities that you've always called home, the how is it that, you know, you, you, I think we're all motivated to give back in our own ways. But, like, this is, this is something that directly affects your neighbors. So do you want to speak to that a little bit? Like, being grown and raised and, and born and raised in Memphis and giving back in that capacity yes it's very interesting that you would say that emily so i grew up in what is called the historic orange mound Mm -hmm. neighborhood growing up as a kid i seen the the neighborhood was very very influential i had a lot of i had a very good upbringing of course you always see those that may be struggling a little bit more than others however now looking back at the neighborhood it's definitely not what I grew up seeing where you had more home ownership, whereas now you have a lot of renters or, and you know, the economic status has changed a lot. Property has changed a lot in the neighborhood. They are doing, they are doing a lot of community building and community networking now. However, there are individuals that are unhoused that Mm -hmm. are there that, that within that community, is an is a issue. It can, it can yeah. be a big issue. So growing up, it's def- it has definitely changed. Yeah. It's definitely changed. And now the work that I do with Community Alliance, it, de- it definitely helps me to see the system as a whole mm. and not necessarily focus on just one entity of Memphis and Shelby right. County, but also horning in on and kind of breaking down the barriers mm. for each entity of Memphis and Shelby County. Yeah. So seeing it as a whole rather than, okay, this is my neighborhood, but seeing it as a whole, how can I affect change? How can I be a change agent, not just for my community, but also Memphis and Shelby County? Yeah, yeah. 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 I also grew up in Memphis. I'm a Memphis native. My parents, we moved here when I was in middle school. Both of my parents were in the Navy. I grew up in a very siloed neighborhood in Bartlett. I went mm-hmm. to Bartlett schools. I left and went to school in Missouri, and I stayed there for about a decade. I moved back to Memphis in mid-2017. I got, so my background is working in the helping field as a social worker. I have my yeah. master's in social work, and I pursued that after 
undergrad, I got a job working in residential care for juvenile-involved youth, Mm -hmm. and I learned a lot about just general case management and social work and what it means to connect people to resources and what that really means, but I think what I learned more on a larger scale was how that system operated around those people and not in the benefit of those people, literally around them. I think a lot of those, from my perspective, they're considered Band-Aid services, and so it was a lot of me trying to, from what I felt like working on in a system that was not created for me to work in. It wasn't created to help people. Yeah. And so that inspired me to get my master's in the helping field. I remember I had a class and it was just called diversity. It was like my first semester of undergrad. Mm -hmm. And the professor just had a really eloquent way, eloquent way of explaining privilege and class and how everyone experiences things differently from their perspective and it really just changed the way that I saw people like seeing people first despite their environment right and I worked with juvenile youth my entire career till I moved home to Memphis and then moving home to Memphis I lived in a part of town that I've never lived in before and I became very aware and apparent of the the population in our city that is homeless and so it really uh just sparked my interest I started doing a little more reading and that's how I became aware of community lines for the homeless at the time I was working direct service with youth as that was my only background yeah as I became more aware of what community lines was doing there was a work opportunity there was an opportunity to work for community lines for the homeless and so I've been with calf since 2019 I just celebrate a little over four years now I would be really interested to know and maybe this isn't a question for this moment, but we'll put a pin in it. Like having started pre pandemic and now, you know, we're on the other side of things. And I often think and observe how sometimes we get in the, you know, speaking to that privilege, we get from that perspective where like we can easily forget the last several years and the trauma that we as a society have kind of incurred throughout the pandemic and it's easy to forget but I would imagine that like there are things that you see now that you probably didn't even see in 2019 like the face of homelessness and poverty I I mean I would be interested to know if that has changed but we can we can put a pin in that for now because that might just be its own standalone podcast on how things have changed in the last few pandemic years absolutely huge change yeah 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 Julie yeah so I am unlike uh, Aaron and Kirsten, I'm not a lifelong Memphian. I've lived here for several decades. And I, when I first moved to Memphis, I think like everybody does even today, would drive around town, see people sleeping outdoors and think, I hope someone is working on this is a problem. Yeah. And I really hope someone is out there working on this. Surely someone is out there working on this but not really knowing who was doing what. Mm -hmm. And I was an educator for my first career, but then I went to school to become a social worker. In doing uh, one-on-one client services was where my eyes were really open to the issue itself. So I worked with Methodist Le I went to on home visits with nurses 
to new, very often young, pregnant moms who were having issues with their housing. And as the social worker going, riding along with the nurse, my job was to help them address their housing issues. And so that gave me a really eye-opening picture of, of the struggle and what the really specific needs are in this community. So like Kirsten, in my social work, graduate work, I decided to, to do systems level work. Yeah, and it mm-hmm. seems like if you're gonna tackle something, and that was one of the questions I was gonna bring to you, is like, how do you, you're not, maybe solving homelessness is such a, I put air quotes around that, it, it's so huge. It is such a massive elephant to eat. But if you're going to ever make a dent in it, it seems like it would have to be systems work. Because, I mean, is that something that y'all can speak to? Like how, tell me what poverty is in Memphis, what you all observe. Like what, what does it, I, I know there's probably lots of faces of it, but what is what does it look like when a person is without a home or, you know, someone who we would label homeless? I would imagine it's lots of systems have failed them. And and in order to really make a dent in that, you have to integrate that and, and see how they are working together and how you know you can weave together those different social safety nets to make sure that people are cared for. Can you all talk speak a little bit to homelessness in Memphis and Shelby County and like what someone might assume a homeless person is and then what it really might mean to not have a you know steady place to hang your hat. Yeah. There are, well, this is a huge question and I will chip away as best I can, but it is a, it really highlights something that I feel is a gap in the, the average person's knowledge. Homelessness looks as though it, it is, well, it certainly is a poverty issue and a social service issue. And so therefore it seems that it should have a set of fairly concrete solutions to solve it but it actually is a systemic issue like you highlighted. And so the pieces of that puzzle, you know, that that the three of us and everyone here lay in bed at night thinking about how do we solve this puzzle have to do with decades of systemic racial inequity. They have to do with the affordable housing crisis. They have to do with, of course, people experiencing homelessness might also have intersecting challenges that relate to mental health or substance abuse. Those are components of it, but the big pieces are really the systemic issue that we work on. And so homelessness, yes, it doesn't just have one face. It's a, it's a continuum, it's layered. You have people who have been sleeping outdoors for years and years, decades. And then we have people who are just hanging on by a thread and have maybe kind of been on that edge, moving in and out perhaps their whole life. There's a really vast continuum. Each one of those types of homelessness requires its own special intentional approach. And so those are... Those are some of the pieces, you know, we talk about it being a system. Those are some of the pieces that we work on. Right. I mean, I would imagine that it looks very different to be a person who is homeless 
because you know they maybe they got sick and they couldn't pay their medical bills and you know there's there's that whole element of I was I did have a roof over my head and then I lost my home because I also lost my job because my illness made it made it in, impossible for me to carry on and there's you know an, that other kind of chronic homelessness that I think a lot of times our our mind immediately goes to you know a person who has not who has slept on the streets for years and how they would need very different things um indeed yeah Aaron you 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 were like you had the little spidey sense <laughs> what were you gonna add I mean I, I agree wholeheartedly with Julie has talked about and what Julie said and I also the healthcare piece is a big piece as well because that's a portion that a lot of people don't talk about or assume oh well you know those bills will get paid or they're choosing between being homeless and the medical or they don't care about their health care and I think a lot of it is you know a lack of knowledge you know a lack of understanding a lack of resources and some of some people um some people actually know Mm-hmm. and they don't know where to go yeah. or they don't know who to talk to and then you have others that they they just they don't get it it's not something that is that is an everyday thing that they're worried about or concerned about yeah right and so sometimes you know when you're talking about homelessness and you're talking about health care and you're talking about all the things that make up that system mm. education is a big piece of yeah. it you know and not knowing not knowing where to go who to talk to what do I need you know when you you know when you're talking about shelter what yeah. shelter services are available how can I access those shelter services you know when you're talking about health care what hospitals do I just have to go to the ER or do I not go to the ER when it comes to a family right they may be sleeping in their car or yeah something of that nature and you're like well this mom is trying to figure out or dad is trying to figure out okay so where are the resources where do I go yeah do and I go to that service provider what are the what are the requirements for me to go to that service provider so lack of knowledge and understanding is definitely a key as well and I would imagine that like the stigma piece is plays prominently as well especially if you came from a place of everything was taken care of you didn't have to question whether or not you would have a home or these basic needs met and then all of a sudden you do lose everything and and a lot of times I think that we walk around in America and and if someone has something and then they lose it it's like well would you do why, why didn't you, why couldn't you hold on to it? And so, I mean, I've known people before that, you know, in conversations, they will reflect back on their childhoods and they're like, dang, I don't know why my parents didn't ask for WIC or for, you know, assistance because we weren't, we were poor. But, but, and, 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 you know, they'll, they'll say, well, maybe it was just like, they just didn't want to ask. You just don't want to ask for help because there is such a cloud that we collectively place on people who are not, not, you know, living in that place of privilege at any given moment. I mean, so it's like, A, you don't even, you don't know the questions to ask 
even if you do know the questions to ask or who can help with this certain thing, would you even bother to do it? And, and and that's a us problem. It's like, what can we do to destigmatize it? It's like, okay, well, we're not going to solve that problem today. But, yeah. Ooh, that's a big one. I mean, how do you get the community, and we talk our, talk about this a lot within the work that we do at Community Alliance, is how do you get the public not to stigmatize, right? Yeah. Not to demean a mother that she may be a sex worker, that may be... Yeah the way that she provides for her family. Right. But why do I demonize what she does if that's the way that she knows to provide for her family, yep. right? Or I may have, I mean, like, for example, I'll speak on my, on my family, right? So my dad was an addict, right? But in him, in his latter days of being an addict, he asked for help. Yeah. And he sought out that help, and he was able to be re- rehabilitated and graduated from college and all the things, right? But in that, beforehand, being an African-American male, being a minority, mm-hmm. he thought that that stigma or him being a male was a symbol of him not right. wanting to get help, right? right. He's like, right. I don't really want to get help. Nah, I'm, I'm a man. I can do this. Yeah, it's like man up. Yeah. You just yeah, yeah. show you suck up. suck it up. Yeah. You, do, you do what you have to do to get clean or get better or whatever, but he was functional, so for him, it's like, well, I'm a fu- I'm functional, yeah. So I can I go to work. I can I can pay for, you know. I mean, he couch surfed for many years, yeah. But he didn't have a place to himself. He didn't play. He didn't have a place of his own. Yeah, it wasn't his. It wasn't his home. You know what I mean? That's right. Yeah. But to him, he was manning up. That was his way of manning up. Yeah. And I think as a public. When we're talking about the unhoused or we're talking about those that couch surf, you right. may have young people that couch surf. I think we need to look at it from a different aspect. You know, why won't you come and get help? Right. You know, what is what is the it that will keep you from getting the help that you need right. or seeking the help that you need? And we have to ask ourselves that in, in our everyday work that we do to yeah. make it to where they're comfortable enough or they feel secure enough to come to to a safe place or to one of our service providers and get the help that they need or to get the help that they seek. Yeah. So, yeah. One of the things that you sort of, you brought up and that we've all, we've kind of been dancing around this a little bit is that homelessness doesn't necessarily look like, I mean, it, it does look like a person, you know, crumpled on a straight corner with, you know, several bags, but it can also be a young person or a person of any age who is couch surfing and who doesn't necessarily have a stable address and how that need for a stable address is such a huge factor in becoming, you know, in, in hitting those marks. If we're going to have to hit marks, it's like, if, if we have a place where we know we stay, then we can apply for a job or we can have a routine. We're not always feeling like, okay, we're, I'm triaging what my next day is going to be because I don't know where I'm going to be tomorrow. And, and having a, an address matters. Do y'all want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So something that's really emphasized in what we do is understanding that when you are when you are experiencing homelessness like you are in a constant state of crisis it's like you're saying if I 
how do how would we expect somebody who is outside and it's about to get cold how do we expect them to even prioritize work or mental health medication when they don't have anywhere to sleep and so hud and our community recognizes a practice that's called housing first Mm -hmm. and it essentially means that we are prioritizing someone's housing over any required sobriety or program enrollment right so it is ensuring that the client gets housed first Uh, it is firmly believed and research has shown that the research that HUD has shown is that when we can make someone feel safe and housed research shows that they become more self-sustained they're more likely to engage in supportive services they're more likely to sustain that housing Mm -hmm. and maintaining their own needs outside of that housing mental health physical health social needs social connections community so we practice something that's called housing first and the idea is that all of our housing providers cannot require any contingencies to house that person as long as they meet the you know minimum requirements and it it just it's really obvious they become way more engaged if they maintain their housing and it's an appropriate placement for them they become more engaged they are when they're offered services they be they maintain those services mm-hmm. so yeah, we yeah. definitely acknowledge that housing is that first from our perspective and what we do is housing is that first step to self-sustainability um and that just, I think that's just our like human nature to just want to be safe first. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. absolutely. And we yeah. want to, we want to like make sure that there's something that we can go home to. I mean, well, actually that's not a great uh, illustration because it's home, but yeah, like that is the most basic need is just knowing that you're not going to be in crisis tomorrow. Maybe not being in crisis will enable you to think about what your hopes and dreams are and actually start to pursue them and like start to get clean if you're if you're addicted and form those relationships that are that carry us you know when when our when our families know where we are or friends know where we are then they can they can come and check in on us right you make a really good point about. Oh, I lost it. Sorry. The it's okay. Sorry. No, it's okay. I I lose it. I lose it all the time. Okay. <laughs> well, it'll come back. Related to like what she just yeah. said. Yeah. Like friendships or relationships, or when you when you're not in crisis, you can be in a place and get oh, clean. Or you made a really good point by saying housing. You say houses. Housing is a basic human right. We here at CAF also believe that. I think if the community genuinely believed that, these conversations might be a little different. Yeah. If we thought of housing as a right and not mm-hmm. something you have to like meet some criteria for or you have to be enrolled in the right program or you have to meet some basic eligibility requirement. If the community genuinely saw housing as a human right, mm-hmm. we would be having a different conversation. But you feel that way and we at Community Alliance for the Homeless feel that way. But I think that's a really good thing to drive home when we're talking about how we th- how we perceive the houseless population and how the community perceives the houseless population is we believe it's a right and that everyone should have it and i think the general consensus in the population is yes everyone should have housing but i think when it when we really get into the nitty-gritty of what that means as a community mm. it's a little different and the work that would be required for that yeah and the money investment yeah so one of the things that I've learned about Community Alliance for the Homeless is that 
y'all are not just one direct service provider. You are almost a hub for other org. Well, definitely you are a hub for other organizations that can drill down into those needs because I mean, if, if we all know one thing, when you're trying to alleviate big and or to assuage big, huge problems, you, we can't do it all on our own. And so can you all talk a little bit about the model that uh, you work with and how Community Alliance for the Homeless like plugs in with different organizations and like entities? within not just in Memphis, but Shelby County and just all the other areas that y'all touch. Yes, certainly. We are, so in doing system level work on homelessness, that is our primary, what do you call it? Our mode of operation. We actually do not provide any direct services to clients because we are really focused on this role of being an intermediary organization, Mm -hmm. um, of being a convener, a collaborator and facilitating the relationships that have to happen if we want to impact homelessness. We hold this symposium every year. We bring together all of the service providers who are providing those direct services to people experiencing homelessness. We bring together our city and county government. We even had a representative of our state government come this year, and the theme was collaboration. And we discussed a lot of the research around what works in communities around the country who are making really good progress mm-hmm. on reducing and ending homelessness and, and what, what hasn't worked in the past. And so you know, you're asking the question about solving poverty itself yeah. or impacting poverty. Um, it goes down to the, each individual community. Absolutely. And what, and what, and how you map what poverty looks like. That's po- exactly po- right. Poverty in Memphis is going to look very different from poverty in Seattle. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so we, you know, we've also referenced COVID a few times. We've learned from COVID that social assistance programs those really can have an impact. We've seen what it looks like when they are increased, and then we got to see what it looks like when they were taken away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but but truly, collaboration is what we spend a lot of our time doing. And so we, you know, our role as that intermediary organization is, as you described, we bring together nonprofit agencies, faith-based organizations, even private businesses. We have a lot of people who belong to the Memphis and Shelby County Homeless Consortium. Mm -hmm. You can find out all about it on our website, CAF.org, and we invite anyone who's interested to become a member and to have a voice in what's in this discussion about homelessness. So we facilitate all the meetings of the consortium. We oversee the strategic plan to end homelessness for Mm -hmm. Memphis and Shelby County our city and county government partners. We collaborate strongly with them on that plan and on the execution of that plan, as well as with the entire consortium. Mm -hmm. We have committees that are working on all different initiatives right now. I think we have nine different committees. One committee is working on family homelessness. One committee is advocating for affordable housing policies to impact homelessness. So everybody's working on all those, as I said, the pieces of the puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. And so we are, um, we're, we're over seeing all of that work do you ever from this sort of mile high uh, vantage point are there things that you guys see over and over and maybe 
duplicate work that is done in a silo and oh my, and ever get frustrated like oh my gosh if if y'all would just get together and and see how we can be working together because i've i've worked in the nonprofit sector before and it'll drive you nuts how how they're we we don't all have to like we we can all come together and talk about the things that we're seeing because we are all a lot of times seeing the same things does that make sense oh absolutely absolutely you know i think sort of a, a different twist on that is we are always really careful about ensuring that we are not doing duplicate work yeah. so in these meetings with a consortium or in committees people have great ideas all the time and as the intermediary or the facilitator we we are in all of these different conversations so we often know when something might be duplicative and we're able to say oh that work is already being done by this organization they're doing a great job let's refer to them or also when there's like a hole like where we see a need i yes. bet you can easily easily pinpoint like okay this is a thing that needs to be done yes do you want to speak to that like what are some of the th we, we've talked a little bit already about how having what was the term that you used Kirsten that that y'all go by and it's about having a home like oh, housing first housing first yeah. yes so housing first we we know we know that that is not a silver bullet I hesitate to use, I, I want to, I want to put that term on it, but I know it's not as easy as that, but like housing first is proven. What are some of the things that, uh, have to be in place in order for that to be seen here in Memphis? There there are many gaps. We talk about them yeah. every day. We have an annual gaps analysis where we really publish a report so that the mm -hmm. community also can see what the gaps yeah. are. You know, in, in looking at the homeless homelessness system, we look at everything from when people enter to mm -hmm. when people exit. We look at how people enter and exit. We look at the time it takes for someone to enter and exit. We are always looking at the, those two um, bookends, the yeah. entrance and the exit. We're trying to be sure that if someone, if circumstances um, are so that someone becomes homelessness, how can we make it rare? How can we make it non-recurring? How can we make it as brief as possible? So those identifying the gaps kind of, that's yeah. the background, right? Mm -hmm. um, one I can say off the top of my head is emergency, low barrier emergency shelter. We yeah. just do not have enough yeah. where people can go without having to pay a fee, yeah. where people can go without being required to do X, Y, or Z, where they can just go to seek shelter. That's a need. Another gap, and I might pass to Kirsten for this, is we've had an uptick in family homelessness. Yeah. We have a lot of families sleeping in cars right now. We have a lot of school children. The school system identifies children who are experiencing homelessness. So we've kind of, not kind of, we have started a, or opened up our coordinated entry system, the way that we identify these families. Mm -hmm. And do you wanna talk a little bit about that, Kirsten? So like Julie was saying, a lot of the big thing that like, especially that we're tracking is like when people enter, when people exit. And that is like the big COC focus for the coordinated entry. When clients enter coordinated entry, they're discussed on like a routine basis. So mm -hmm. we're really just trying to make sure that those who are experiencing housing crisis are like connected to the best of their ability. So 
when we're doing that in those meetings, we're like identifying additional trends mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that may not necessarily show up in, you know, cause it's, we want to wait for the gaps analysis, but there are, there are trends that are popping up more and more. Yeah. And one is families with dependents who are experiencing re-entry into homelessness, a lot of, with either job yeah. loss or with rent, Oop. with rent, increase the rent increases. And then in addition, and wages, not, really, not increasing. Yeah, no, not yeah, at all. Yeah. And then loss of childcare has been another one yeah. for families. Loss of childcare because childcare is also becoming too expensive yeah. is another large trend. In addition to that, we're seeing a lot of elderly people enter into the homeless population because of their own fixed incomes and with the rent increasing. And there are some additional trends in terms of like more specific into populations, people with specific criminal backgrounds, that it's not that we don't want to follow housing first, but federally, legally, they won't allow us. Yeah. And trying to identify how to best house those people despite their backgrounds. Um, yeah. So I would say elderly people with what we consider more intense criminal backgrounds yeah. um, and definitely people with dependents and in addition to that, the need for that for shelter for families is yeah. is so families is the smallest number of shelter beds that we have, but the highest need. Yeah. And the shelters that we do have in the community for the most part are not free. Right. So that is definitely a need in terms yeah. of identifying those. When you find that you're doing this kind of work and it can be so much what are the things that you all observe when you find people who are willing to support and they are committed to the cause and they are committed to ending homelessness here in Memphis or assuaging that pain of loss that you know usually precipitates the loss of a home what are the things that motivate those who are committed to this work aka why do you stick around how do y'all stick around what what where does your what is your why and and how is it that this is hard this is hard work and what sustains you individually or collectively for me personally it is a lot of smaller successes within our own community we do offer so much technical assistance and training that when HUD puts out something new that they have to understand and it takes us some time for them to really grasp in their own processes. Mm -hmm. Like that's kind of a small success for us is ensuring that they are doing with, with their funding, what's intended from HUD on that smaller scale. For me personally, there are some communities nationwide that are per HUD ending homelessness. Like we mentioned earlier, everyone has their own eligibility for that, but there are some communities in the country that have found ways to do that per HUD. And that kind of excites me because those populations aren't in size wise too far off from Memphis. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the things that they're doing are not directly applicable in the city of Memphis, but definitely if they can do it, we can do it. Yeah. And so that makes me excited. Yeah. I feel that. I feel that. Yeah. Sometimes I, I love I love thinking about kind of our maybe not uh, official sister cities, but there are some some cities in in the United States that I feel like in Memphis we have kind of a kinship to because there is a similar demographical profile and we experience a lot of the same difficulties and and to see how human beings can can get together and do the right thing for long enough 
that it makes an impact, like a permanent positive impact on the lives of people who are the least of these, what, you know, Jesus called the least of these. And, and it, it, that, that, that's huge to me too. So I, I relate to that a lot about just, it's different, but it is kind of the same. Mm-hmm. I think of my answer, I would agree with everything Kirsten said. And for me, you know, the word that comes to mind is hope that on a, on a personal level, and I think everyone in this work, if we didn't carry a sense of hope, it, it would be very difficult, heavy work to do. Yeah. Um, you know, it's part of our guiding principles that we, be- we believe that housing is a human right. We believe that homelessness is a solvable problem. And we believe that our community has the resources to end homelessness. And I firmly believe all three of those things. And so the challenge of making systemic progress, which is glacially slow, you really have to be patient with it. As Kirsten said, celebrate the small wins. Yeah, it's generational work. It's generation work. But even, you know, being in it just a few years, I can look back on the trajectory and I can see the progress. And so that sense of hope and just believing that this, that we can solve this. We really can. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for me, Hope is definitely one, and I agree with what Kirsten and Julia said. But also, being a native Memphian, I, I, I'm i a grit and grinder, right? Yeah. <laughs> so this work is, is, is gritty. <laughs> it is definitely a grind. You have to stick with it, stay with it. But it's also, it's a, it takes a team effort. It takes yeah. a collaborative effort. And I think here at Community Alliance, we pride ourselves on collaborating with the community, right? And not only with those that are part of the consortium, but also those that are outside of the consortium, those that are just doing the work daily that may be the mom and pop organizations, right? And so we we look at it from we're all family here. We're mm-hmm. a huge community and we're working for the greater good. We're working to move things forward in Memphis and Shelby County amongst our unhoused population. Like Kirsten said, there are small wins that we are yay, we're yeah. excited about, right? And we and we take those small wins and we run run with those small wins, knowing that there's a greater end in sight, knowing that at the end of the tunnel the light is there. Yeah. And so that's what what keeps me focused and keep me going. That at the end of this tunnel, the light will be there, and I can look back and be like, "Wow, yeah, wow, this yeah. is what we did. That's what's up." Yeah. <laughs> if people want to. Are, if people are listening today and they're like, okay, well, sign me up. What do I need to do? Like, how, how can I help you? Like, what what is y'all's like today? What is your greatest need? And how can people, how can people engage? How can how can people plug in? How can we help? Project Homeless Connect, January twenty fifth, twenty twenty four. Yeah, it is on its way. Tell us all about. <laughs> I know about it. I know about it. But tell me all about Project Homeless Connect. So Project Homeless Connect is basically an all-day 
service provider day where all service providers, volunteers, staff, we worked diligently with um, organizations and service providers to provide basically all resources, all access to resources under one roof. This roof will be at the Memphis Sports and Event Center. It's new to Memphis, and so we wanted to make sure that, you know, our community, those that are unhoused, are able to um, be a part of that as well. So Project Homes Connect, we are merging um, this year. We're kind of relaunching, revisioning this year. And so this year we are also um, branching it with our annual point in time count that is mandated by HUD Mm -hmm. for Memphis and Shelby County for us to do this annual count. But here at Community Alliance, we don't just say, oh, we just want to do a count. So this particular year, we wanted to relaunch it and make it to where we could also provide services on that on those yeah. days as well. Not only just doing the count or check doing a checklist, but also being intentional about providing those services to those that really need it. Yeah. Well, and can we learn more about it on y'all's website and like yes. all, all the information you can shake a stick at is on y'all's website? Yes. And all the information for Project Homes Connect is on our website and that is CAF.org. And, or you can just look us up at Community Alliance, Google us, Community Alliance for the Homeless, and you can find all the information right there on our website. Yeah. And I encourage everyone listening to get involved because it matters it could matter today for you it could be we are all neighbors we are all in this together and yeah I think that it's just we're all one big family and it's important that we take care of our family so thank you all so much for being with me today Aaron Woods Julie Myman and Kirsten Hipkins And thank you for being with us today on Faithfully Memphis. Uh, If you like what you heard, find our podcast. And it's wherever you listen to podcasts, Spotify, Apple Music, all the places. Share us with a friend. You can learn about the Episcopal Church in West Tennessee on our website, edwtn.org. And we also are on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, much to my 11-year-old chagrin, and we're even on Blue Sky and Threads, so find us over there too. Until next week, my friends, stay safe and stay positive. Bye!